Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. All right, welcome back to the Westside Investors Network podcast. Today, we have a deal deep dive segment with Caleb Johnson of Red Sea Capital. Caleb, thanks for joining us today. Please introduce yourself and let the people know who you are. Trent, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited to be here with you and your listeners and just looking forward to share about this deal and even a little bit about my story, if you like. Of course. Yeah. So I'm looking here. It says Red Sea Capital was founded in 2022. So last year, what did you do before that? So I have been investing for the last six years. So I had about five years of investing experience prior to Red Sea Capital Group. A little bit of that was in commercial, multifamily, and then even before that was smaller residential apartment buildings. So two, four units, a couple house hacks in there. So living in one of those units, renting out the other ones. I have inherited some exciting tenants from drug dealers, hoarders, living with mice, roaches. So great experience to get my hands dirty. And so that's a little bit about my background. And what got you into just real estate in general? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. And I think it always starts with the why. And so for me, my why was with my parents, really, they are W-2 workers. My dad's worked at a library for 30 years. And my mom is a therapist. And so my mom had to have bilateral knee replacements. So that meant she had to get both of her knees replaced. And that forced her out of work for about three months. And she was living off of her savings at that time. And I'd say she was forced back to work prematurely because she could not afford to survive off her savings and still have money for retirement. So I would see her come home, Trent, in tears because she was in so much pain from her body not healing properly. And that did two things for me that really made me motivated to aid her financially, help her retire quicker. And also, I saw that and I did not want that for myself. I didn't want to get to six years old, have a surgery that I could not predict or something that I could not predict. And now I'm really affected at that age. That takes years off of your life, the stress and everything with that. So I didn't want that for myself. I made the decision to change. And when I learned that 90% of millionaires had gotten their millions through real estate, I thought that was so stupid. I had to do more research on that. And that's how I got started. I love it. And it sounds like you got started from a fairly young age. I mean, you look fairly young still today, but it sounds like you kind of jumped right into it head first from the get-go. I started investing in real estate when I was 19. 
I've been an owner, a business owner since 18, started managing others when I was 19 as well. So I've been blessed to have some great mentors in my life at a young age, and I feel like I have an old soul to begin with. So say we're pretty, pretty similar in that aspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what got you to start Red Sea Capital? Obviously, it sounded like you want to take the next step in the real estate journey, but was there anything in particular that got you to want to start your own syndication or capital group? Yeah, yeah, that was. Working with some other partners, I always felt like, even with a job, I didn't like someone telling me what to do that I might not believe in. If I see something that I think can be done a different way or a better way, then I want to do it that way. And I don't want to be forced to do it a different way when I see another option. So that was kind of my intent that I wanted to provide value to others that I work with so that I think whenever anyone's starting off, you don't know what you don't know. So you kind of need to work for free to an extent for a certain amount of time. And then maybe if you feel like you want to branch off into your own thing, then that's great. And that was the case for me. So again, wanted to provide value for them and eventually just took the step to my own company. Very nice. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording today, but it sounds like the company's on a pretty good trajectory. You guys mm -hmm. have, you said five different assets across three states. Am I correct? That's right. That's right. From Arizona, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and then we're very aggressive in pursuing properties in other markets such as Arkansas and Texas. Very nice. And today we're going to talk about the one or one of the deals in New Mexico and Albuquerque. Quickly, can you just describe what the overview of that specific asset? Yeah, it was on the smaller side from what we currently pursue. So it was 30 units, all townhomes, which was nice. And the reason that was nice, I'll, I'll kind of explain for your listeners Whenever, let's say, compared to a one bedroom, mm -hmm. the vacancy is a lot higher overall, right? So if you have 100 units of one bedrooms, your vacancy, let's just say, might be a 10 compared to if you have 100 two-bedroom apartments with a mixture of three-bedroom apartments, they're usually longer-term tenants. So maybe your vacancy is going to be a seven or a six. If you project that over five years, that was really valuable for us because, I mean, that's, let's say, over five years at 3%, five times three is 15% that you're saving over that course of time, which really affects your bottom line and overall returns to investors. So that's a little bit about the property. It was off market, and I'm sure we can get into that. And yeah, happy to share anything else you have questions about. Yeah. So that's actually my next question is, how did you find this deal? And when you found it, describe that process a little bit from finding the deal, what your underwriting looked like, and then actually submitting an offer or an LOI. Mm -hmm. So I had learned from a mentor of mine. And at that point, I was actually underwriting. You could say I was bird dogging where I would call brokers, let's say that I found on LoopNet. And I would build that relationship for months. And I'm still building those relationships now over now two, three years. I had made this connection with this broker and we had been developing that relationship for about six months. And I had looked at other offerings from him and he called me up one day, let's say it was a Wednesday. He said, Hey, Caleb, I got this deal. I called the seller and he said, you know, he's got this LOI on the table, but if I, being the broker, could present him with another offer by Friday, then he would consider it. So he called me because he knew that we were in that market. 
And again, we were in communication. So we were on front of mind and uh, he called me up, gave me the financials and I acted quickly and underwrote it. And at that time I had been, whenever I found an offering, kind of our structure in our team was that I would, let's say, text my partner and say, hey, I've got this offering. Do you have 30 minutes? And we would do a Zoom call very similar to this and go over the underwriting. I could plug everything in and I could see, oh, this is an offering or this is a deal or not. But whenever something was looking like it penciled, that was the structure. And from there, yeah, within about one to two days, we submitted the LOI and it was very close. And I think what ultimately awarded us the deal was our team history. So our rap sheet, we had already owned 60 units and a market fairly close to this market. And again, I don't know what the other buyer's bio was, but I feel like that's kind of what helps us win it. When you get a deal that comes across your desk and it has potential, what kind of underwriting are you looking for in terms of your IRRs? cash on cash. Is there anything specific that you look for? Mm -hmm. So overall returns is generally, I'd say at least a seven and a half to an 8% cash on cash return. And that's a five-year hold, usually five to seven years. And IRR is about a 17. And then AAR is again, about 17. And we would prefer not to have a refinance just with the way capital markets are Agency debt's kind of the way to go and bridge is super risky, super hard to make work. So that's our goal, but we still do refinance some of our deals when we need to. Very nice. And then when it comes to actually financing specifically this deal, how'd you go about raising capital and what was the amount that you had to raise or the purchase price required for this deal? Mm -hmm. So the purchase price was 4.5 million for 30 units. So that comes out to uh, 150 a door. And the capital raising, that was really on my partners. It was such a blessing to have some great partners where I brought the offering and now I'm doing a lot of the day-to-day, not like a manager or a property manager, but I'm doing the asset management side of things. And they really raised the bulk of that. I think it was about $2.9 million, maybe $2.something million. And my other partners, they contributed EMD. And so... I guess for me, a great learning point from that was partnerships, right? Having someone on the team that you can rely on, they can act, and that really aided us in getting this done. Very nice. So now that you've raised the capital, you got your financing all figured out, when you're going through due diligence, what are you looking at in terms of walking the property? If you are boots on the ground walking the property, I know it's out of state for you, but in the due diligence period, what are you guys looking at other than just auditing leases? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And this actually comes into play a little bit, even during the underwriting process. And there's a few questions that I'll ask every broker before we even submit an LOI. And those things are, what are the panels, right? So the breakers, what's the wiring of the property, the age of the roofs, if there's any boiler chillers, what the HVAC system looks like, And I'm trying to think if there's any other big things, but I think that covers it. And because of the wiring and panels, that's a big insurance red flag. Oh, and plumbing, that's another one. So if it has, let's say it's a 60s vintage, there's a very high likelihood of having uh, cast iron plumbing 
which I'm going through this right now where you'll have a main line break. And so now you've got to go into units, remove bathtubs, pay for the residents to relocate for a certain amount of time while they're working the unit. And so it's just a headache, you know, it caused me anxiety just thinking about it. So those are the things that we look for during the underwriting process, because that will help us be able to mentally allocate capital and assume that we're going to need to raise, let's say X amount of dollars to replace the cast iron piping or the aluminum wiring, whatever that looks like. And then once we know that information, again, we do hire someone to do a whole walkthrough if it's 300 units or if it's 30 units. We're going to go into every unit and we're going to check what the panels are. We're going to look at what the piping is. And so that's really the DD. And we want to do that because if we're going to buy something and bring our investors' capital into it, you know, I have family invested into these assets. So that's very important to me to give our investors that reassurance that we've even toured the property ourselves before buying it. Absolutely. So for this Albuquerque deal, what kind of construction budget or CapEx plans did you guys or do you guys have and are implementing? Mm-hmm. So this was an 80s vintage. And just to give some color on that, 80s vintage is generally better on the CapEx because around 1985 is when they stopped doing the federal panels and Stablock panels. And people were experiencing these negative things with the older mechanics. We had some better technology back then. So 80s vintage was good and everything was kind of normal with those large CapEx items. And our budget was really to go in, renovate about 50% of the units and leave 50% for the next operator, right? Because we want to, I think, gosh, whenever you go to sell the asset, if it is quote unquote, a value add opportunity, you're going to have maybe 50% more buyers in that pool that will give you an offer. So that's really important to us because we want to keep in mind the disposition phase and besides that, you know, it was kind of just allocating capital for other little things. Swamp coolers are going to go out. But the big thing was just projecting interior renovations, which depending on the market, you know, might be from $5,000 per unit. And depending upon the finish, might go up all the way to $9,500 per unit or even 13000 if you're kind of getting to more A-class. So those were some of the CapEx items. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through off-site professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. So I know you're, and this isn't necessarily specific to this deal, but just you being in multiple markets. I mean, I kind of have an idea because I'm asset management for our team as well. So I kind of have a pretty good idea of what 
a full unit renovation is going to cost us in our local market where we we operate. Mm-hmm. How does it differ from each different market that you're in in terms of like mm-hmm. a full unit renovation cost? That's a really good question because again, I'd say it goes back to the your demographic in the market, right? So if you're in uh, an A class neighborhood in Dallas Fort Worth, then you're probably going to need to project, let's say, nine to ten thousand dollars per unit, or maybe even more if you want to put granite throughout and there are larger units as well. So you have to factor that in. And I think that really goes back to having a great property manager. I just actually had this phone call yesterday with a manager, and it's a new market that I don't have an offering or a deal in yet. And so he's given me some great color on if you invest $5,000 into a unit, you want to see that return in five years, or you just want to at least know when you're going to see that return come back to you. Because if you're expecting to get a $100 premium per month in those units, then you want to backtrack and think, okay, well, I don't want to go off spending $15,000 if I'm going to hold this for five years, because I'm not going to see that return on investment. So maybe you can invest, let's say $5,000 and see that return on investment sooner. And maybe your residents won't even really care again, because you're in that C, B neighborhood compared to the A class neighborhood. So keeping that in mind, having a great property manager in your back corner, because they're going to be the ones that are actually implementing that. They're going to be on the ground doing that. So having them in your corner is really helpful and it does vary depending on the market and the asset. Awesome. So for now, focusing back on the New Mexico or the Albuquerque mm-hmm. deal, when it came to unit renovations, what were you guys doing in terms of, I know you talked about, there was some system updates that needed to be taken care of, but when it comes to the cosmetic finishes, what was your guys' plan or what is your plan for some of the interior work? Mm-hmm. And in full transparency, that even adjusted after we acquired the property a little bit. So it's really vinyl flooring throughout with these townhomes, there are stairs. And right, I would think put vinyl on the stairs, it looks much better than carpet and getting into insurance problems. And even the people that install the flooring, they're very hesitant about doing that because it's a trip hazard. People might step on that staircase. And since it's a hardwood floor, they would slip. So taking that into consideration, and even when we get to second story units, it's generally what I've heard in the market is two things. People want to have carpet on the second floor because there's that padding and it's not so loud on the bottom units. And in my experience, residents will turn down a unit if there's carpet. So you're going to get hit on the vacancy. And additionally, The noise, in my experience, hasn't been that big of a problem, right? If I've heard horror stories of people that say, my upstore neighbor snores, and so I'm going to move out and break the lease. And I haven't had that experience. So vinyl throughout the whole unit and putting a backsplash on there, depending on the market, we're seeing subway tile really be in fashion. And you might not need to go with stainless steel appliances. Black might be okay. But again, if you're in an A-class neighborhood, you might need stainless steel. So again, that kind of goes back to the property manager and getting their take on what you need. And so they're going to be a, a huge asset for you in that process. Absolutely. So now that you know you got your CapEx, what kind of 
I guess, management efficiencies or revenue efficiencies are you guys looking at? And we can talk about this Albuquerque deal specifically, but everyone that has a value add deal talks about the CapEx and reducing expenses and increasing revenue. But when it comes to actually increasing revenue, were there any rent increases or rent premiums that you felt could go in right away or rubs bill back or mm-hmm. what kind of inefficiencies are you trying to improve? Yeah. Yeah. When we acquired the asset, rents, I think average across the board were in the high 900s. So talking with our property manager, she said, man, if you renovate, even if you don't renovate these things, you could get 1300 bucks all day. And that was like, oh, well, that's a huge increase. That's a huge delta, right? So that turned us on to this deal as well. And so that's a big inefficiency that we're kind of dialing in. And I'll share this with you too, because I think it'll help your listeners because this is something I learned from this deal is that it's important to have a delta in uh, what you're charging in rents for classic units compared to make ready units. And I'll share why it sounds obvious, but for me, it wasn't that obvious. And maybe it is to your listeners. But for me, I thought when we acquired the property, if we don't need to invest $7,000 into interior renovations and we can still get $1,350 a month, hey, that's great. I don't want to have to invest capital to get the return if I don't need to. But whenever we went to market that property, we experienced some pushback because they could get this really nice, sexy renovated unit for $1,350 compared. And then we were also wanting to get $1,350 for a classic. And for them, it didn't make sense. Now, the reason we even went through with that because is we had a resident move in at $1,350 in a classic unit. And they were okay with that because there was a shortage in the market and there was that demand. So the moral of the story was to market the classic units for a little bit of a discount and be able to project that in your numbers, right? And if you go into your underwriting and you're projecting you're going to get $1,350 for all 30 units, then you're going to run into some issues, which is going to really affect you at the disposition phase, as well as investor relations. So I know that was a little bit of a tangent, but just felt like sharing that. Oh, and I'm actually really glad that you did share that because we, our most recent deal that we closed and are starting to go through all the plans and everything, that's actually one thing that came up is on turnovers. I mean, we budgeted and have a construction budget to renovate all these units 50% like you're talking about. And I walked through some of the units and I was like, I don't even think these need to be renovated. Let's just try to get a higher rate. And we had like five or six out of 30 that turned over. They were fine units. It's not like they're super outdated or banged up. And the ones that were, we renovated, but we were able to get pro forma projections without doing anything in terms mm-hmm. of specific unit rents. So that was something that I actually learned too, is just because you have the budget doesn't mean you have to spend the budget, especially right. if you're going to hit your numbers without spending more money than you have to, which is, I'm glad you talked about that. Right. Much better. So when it comes to the disposition phase, obviously you're, you're going to stabilize everything and, and operate it for a handful of years. You mentioned that the disposition that you target is five to seven years, typically for your deals or your mm-hmm. assets. When it comes to that five-year mark, are you just listing as soon as it hits five years or how are you deciding when you're going to dispose of these assets? Yeah. And that fluctuates depending on the market because if we can really get the price that we wanted at five years, but we can get that at year two, then we're going to sell it because we can give that return to the investors in two years compared to five. And that looks much better. 
on the returns. So it really depends on the market and you really have to be in tune with that. Kyle Mitchell, he wrote a great book called Best in Class, and it really goes into the weeds. And one thing that I took from that book is that it talks about being the asset manager. There's a lot of things that you need to track on your properties to make sure everything's in order. Your property manager is doing their job and you just want to be a good steward of the investment that you have. So there are a lot of things to track. And while you're tracking those, that will really get you inundated with where your property's performing. And I think that knowledge is so key because whenever you have that at the forefront of your mind, then you can know what you can sell it for. And that's just really key, just being inundated with where the property is performing and also being in tune with the state of the market, wherever your property is located. That really will depend upon when you sell it. Awesome. Have you disposed of any units yet? No, we did have on another property in Oklahoma, actually, we attempted to sell an asset and we thought we could get pricing. And so long story short, we're probably off about $10,000 per door from the highest asking price. And so we have not yet, but looking forward to. It's not all bad if it's cash flowing, right? Yeah. Yeah. As long as it is cash flowing, you don't want to be forced to sell, right? There should be a lot of opportunities coming up because of bridge financing, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) (laughs) I guess last couple of questions, going back to Red Sea, and I really appreciate you running us through that deal in Albuquerque and kind of where your thoughts were at and where your team's thoughts were at with that deal and why you guys took it down. What are your goals and what are Red Sea's goals for this year in terms of How are you going to continue your growth? Yeah, that is a great question, Trent. And I think just staying consistent. One thing that comes to mind is the book Atomic Habits. And I don't know if you've read that book, but it talks a lot about instead of focusing on the goal, right? So if I want to have 500 units by the end of 2023, which is my lag measure, so the end result, the book Atomic Habits talks about if you implement a habit that will get you to that lag measure, then you'll get that lag measure, your ultimate goal eventually. And even better yet, you'll have a habit put in place so that you can build upon that habit. So a quick example is I had a goal to read three hours a day. I was reading about 40 minutes a day and I have my time, let's say at 8 a.m. I'm going to read every morning. I read 20 minutes. That's a habit, but since I already have that habit in place, I'm going to read a second book right after I read that first book. So now I'm what you call habit stacking. So I'm putting a habit right when I do another habit. And now I've just doubled my reading time and I have habits set in place that are getting me closer to that goal. And you can really apply that to almost any aspect of your business. So my goal in 2023 is really to just stay consistent. And I have a goal of underwriting 33 deals, 33 deals a month. Maybe it's every two months. I'm forgetting my goal. But yeah, so if we underwrite 33 deals every two months, then we will get to the lag measure, which is closing 500 units in 2023. You know, I've never read the book, but I think my partners have because we use a very similar situation when it comes to goal setting quarterly and annually. I like how you explain that because you do a good job of 
kind of explaining your guys' process. We have a similar process and a lot of people focus on the the results and the goals, but they don't create the plan to achieve those goals. So I appreciate you sharing that, Kib. Is there anything else you want to share with our audience today where they can connect with you, where they can hear more from you? Yeah, absolutely. And Trent, I do want to say just thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I enjoy this conversation with you and I love talking real estate. I could talk that all day long. If people want to learn more about me, they can tune into my podcast called From Trial to Triumph. Again, that's From Trial to Triumph. And visit us at Red Sea, like the ocean, redccapitalgroup.com. We have tons of resources over there and I hope to connect with you soon. Awesome. Caleb, thank you again for sharing about Albuquerque and 30 Units today. I appreciate your time and I can't wait for people to hear this one. Awesome. Me too, Trent. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.